Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Iron River, Michigan. Iron River is a city in Iron County located in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. It was created as a village in 1885, which is when the post office was established before being incorporated as a city in 1926. The town experienced an economic boom in the early 20th century, primarily from mining and lumber, which abruptly ended with the onset of the Great Depression. This left thousands of people unemployed, and for the next several decades, the natural beauty of the area belied the dark times the residents experienced. With the arrival of the 21st century, the economy has seen a modest turnaround, with tourists who are drawn to this town of 3,000 residents to partake in all the natural resources it has to offer, skiing, snowmobiling, hunting, fishing, and hiking. But in 2014, this tension between depression and hope was on full display when one man's quest for a brighter future ended abruptly, the result of an oath of vengeance from the most unexpected source. On October 27, 2014, Terry O'Donnell walked into the Iron River Police Department with tears in her eyes. She said she needed to make a missing persons report. Chief Laura Frizzo saw Terry's obvious distress and directed her to Sergeant Sidney Barrett. When Sergeant Barrett found out Terry was there to report her ex-boyfriend as a missing person, she asked Terry to begin at the beginning and tell her why she believed he was missing. Terry explained that 53-year-old Chris Regan moved to Iron County in late November of 2013, which was just over a year prior. Chris was an Air Force veteran and moved there for a job with Lakeshore Systems. Lakeshore is a company in Iron River that designs and manufactures heavy equipment for maritime and mining industries. Defense contracts were not uncommon, and Chris's military background was an asset. Terry told the sergeant that she believed Chris's ulterior motive in moving to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan was that he wanted to be closer to her. The two had been dating since 2013 and very much enjoyed outdoor activities and traveling together. Chris even rented an apartment from Terry's parents. Terry explained that she and Chris had broken up because Chris was intimate with other women when Terry had traveled to England. Although Chris told Terry his dalliances were meaningless and didn't matter to him, he quickly figured out that it mattered to her. I feel like we need to say something here. I, know, I don't even know what to say. It's like, come on, Chris, you got a low EQ or what? Terry told Sergeant Barrett that even after breaking up, the two maintained a solid friendship and cared deeply for each other. They often texted each other and kept up with each other's lives. When asked about Chris's personality, Terry told Sergeant Barrett that Chris was very responsible and very organized. He was known for his work ethic, often working 10 to 12 hour days at Lakeshore. And he had recently given his two week notice in anticipation of moving to Asheville, North Carolina. 
Terry said that Chris had recently undergone knee surgery and realized he needed a less physical job. He was offered a job in Asheville and preparing for the move when he stopped communicating with her. She told Sergeant Barrett that Chris was particularly excited about the move because he had recently reconnected with his sons, one of whom would be living in North Carolina as well. When Sergeant Barrett asked if there was a possibility that he simply left for Asheville early, Terry said no. She explained that he needed to undergo a drug test and physical exam, which had been scheduled for October 15th. Terry said that Chris's goal was to leave for North Carolina in the latter half of October and begin work on November 1st, 2014. Terry said that she and Chris planned to celebrate his new job after he passed the physical and the drug test. On October 13th, Chris sent Terry a text. He suggested she visit him in North Carolina. Then he suggested she spend Thanksgiving with him. Then he suggested they spend Christmas together. It was the last time Terry would ever hear from Chris. Terry explained to Sergeant Barrett that for the last two weeks, she tried numerous times to get in touch with him. Her texts went unanswered and her phone calls went straight to voicemail. She contacted mutual friends and expressed her concern. She was then told Chris may have been seeing a woman named Kelly Cochran with whom he worked at Lakeshore. However, Terry kept trying to get in touch with Chris because dropping off the face of the earth was not his M.O. Terry told Sergeant Barrett that 10 days after Chris's last communication, someone told her that they thought they saw his Hyundai Genesis at the Bates Park and Go in Iron River. And Kath, my understanding is that this is a park and ride where commuters who ride share simply leave their vehicles. When I lived in Northern Virginia, it was called Kiss and Ride. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which I think it's like <laughs> dropping off somebody for work and, you know, kiss them goodbye and then they go off on a carpool. But... That sounds like something that might happen at band camp. I thought it was awfully presumptuous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it wasn't a requirement. <laughs> it was a suggestion. <laughs> it just kind of gave you hope <laughs> that the day might go really well. When Terry was told that Chris's car was left there, she couldn't believe it because he loved his car and she went to the park and ride and there it was. His Hyundai Genesis was in the parking lot parked away from most of the vehicles, which would have been something he typically did because he didn't want his car to be dinged by people opening their doors. Terry told Sergeant Barrett that Chris's car was locked, but she was extremely concerned because his knee brace was in the car and there was no way he would go somewhere without it. Terry told the sergeant that she had also been to Chris's apartment and his front door was unlocked. When she went in, it looked as though Chris had walked out of his apartment two weeks prior and never returned. After listening to Terry, Sergeant Barrett asked Terry to accompany her to Chris's apartment. The two women drove to his apartment and looked around. Sergeant Barrett noticed cabinets and drawers opened, dirty dishes in the sink, and a suitcase on the bed. The dining room table bore evidence of his pending move. There were handwritten to-do lists, an offer letter from his new employer, his computer, and all of his medications. Sergeant Barrett locked the apartment and told Terry not to go back inside. Kath, I'm sure you read this the same way that Sergeant Barrett was thinking she needed to send a crime scene tech there. The two then drove to the park and ride. As we said earlier, Chris's car was locked. Through the window, Sergeant Barrett could see miscellaneous tools, Chris's water bottle, a hat, the knee braces we mentioned, and a blank yellow post-it note on the passenger seat. Sergeant Barrett used her Slim Jim to open the car, but she was unable to get in the trunk. When she picked up the post-it note, she saw that it contained directions on the other side. Terry told Sergeant Barrett that Chris was an avid post-it user. 
He used those yellow stickies frequently to make lists and notes to himself. And she said that knowing how Chris operated, that post-it being on the seat meant that that was the address Chris was probably going to or the last place he had been. I totally relate to Chris because I am a huge post-it note addict. You are. And it's the best, cheapest Christmas gift ever. (laughs) (laughs) It's like if I'm preparing for a deposition or something, I'll do a bright pink and a yellow and they both mean different things. You know, like everything is color coded in a chaotic sort of way. (laughs) In In a system only you understand. Exactly. But I remember when I worked at the police department for like five years doing homeless stuff. I had this one particular sergeant who was super, super anal and he'd come by my desk. I'm not exaggerating. I had 50 post-it notes. It was organized chaos. It made him want to like... It made him twitchy. Yeah, exactly. He was like, what is this nonsense? (laughs) But I'm like, don't touch anything. Sergeant Barrett had been in communication with Chief Frizzo over the course of the evening and both knew the vehicle needed to be processed. The vehicle was locked up and then photographed from the outside sealed and sent to the Michigan State Police Forensic Lab in Marquette. Sergeant Barrett ran Chris's name through a police database to see if any officers had contact with him in the past two weeks. None had. She then called the VA hospital to see if he had been admitted for any reason. He had not. She contacted Verizon Wireless and asked them to ping his cell phone location and was told that they could not locate the cell phone because it was turned off. They also told her that the last activity on his phone was two weeks prior on October 14th. It turned out that the post-it note contained directions to Kelly Cochran's home. The woman from work Terry was told Chris may have been seeing. At that point, Terry was sent home and Sergeant Barrett partnered up with a Michigan State police officer to visit Kelly's home. Now, Kath, my understanding is that the Iron River Police Department is super small. I think at the time they had six sworn officers, possibly seven, but it was not unusual for them to use the Michigan State Troopers to help out on things. And I actually think that the Troopers had a post nearby. Also, Kath, Sergeant Barrett was in touch with Chief Frizzo throughout this entire evening, all these searches that were being done. And I'm sure the chief kind of was invested in it because she had seen Terry when Terry first went into the police department. Do you think Frizzo was her married name or her maiden name? Because I'm not sure I'd take it if it was a married name. (laughs) I have no idea. But I bet she got teased about that a lot. Oh, heck yeah. She looked like a freaking model, though. Oh, that's how she got away with it. Yeah, exactly. When I saw an interview of her on YouTube, I was like, wow, are you really a police chief or do you just play one on TV? Anyway, I think Chief Frizzo also supported the idea that they needed to partner up with the Michigan State Police. So at 8.30 on the night that Terry reported Chris missing, Sergeant Barrett and State Trooper Boyer went to Kelly Cochran's home. As it turned out, Kelly's husband, Jason, answered the door. Jason Cochran told officers that Kelly wasn't home and to come back in an hour. However, the trooper saw a person standing in the upstairs window. Was that his girlfriend? (laughs) Could have been. (laughs) Could have been. A moment later, Kelly came downstairs and identified herself. And it was funny, Kath, because all of this was on audio recording. Like body cams? Exactly. And Jason was asked why he had lied. And he said something to the effect of, well, you know, I thought Kelly was perhaps in trouble and I know she's done nothing wrong. (laughs) Okay, that's like a five-year-old response. (laughs) Anyway, Jason and Kelly were informed that Chris Regan was a missing person last seen on October 14th, 13 days prior. They asked if Kelly had seen Chris in the last couple weeks. 
She said she had tried texting him but received no response. Kelly admitted to being in a relationship with Chris. With her husband standing there? Yes. Apparently ballless because they were clearly stuffed <laughs> into his wife's pocket. So the clanking was on her side, not his. <laughs> exactly. There was a resonant clanking in the background, but it wasn't coming from him. <laughs> Officers told Kelly and Jason that Chris's car was found in the park and ride, to which Kelly responded, he loved that car, which struck officers as odd because she was using the past tense. Kelly and Jason were then asked to come into the police department for a formal interview the following day. 37-year-old Jason and 33-year-old Kelly were originally from Merrillville, Indiana. In Merrillville, they had a pool business together for 10 years, but eventually Kelly had to do it on her own because of Jason's bad back, and as a result, the business fell apart. They had moved to Iron County, Michigan the year prior in 2013 because you could legally grow marijuana, and the two had experimented with drugs over time, and Jason was particularly interested because of his back pain. As one would be. Cuts the dealer out of the equation. We're sitting here recording in a closet, and you should see the weed plants Kathy has. (laughs) They've seen pictures of my closet. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly and Jason had known each other their whole lives and began hanging out when Kelly was in her late teens. They had been married 12 years at the time of their police interviews in Iron River. When police interviewed Kelly and Jason separately at the Iron River Police Department the following day, it was exactly two weeks to the day Chris was last seen. Jason was emotional and began by talking about his bad back, kidney problems, and overall poor health. His back prevented him from working, and he said he had high anxiety and was institutionalized for it the month prior. Jason said he did not know Chris, but knew that Chris and Kelly were seeing each other. Oh, wow. She really does have his balls. Yeah, for real. He said that he and Kelly were separated and seeing other people, but still living together. Specifically about this, Jason said, I wasn't really happy, but I knew my wife's been seeing people for a couple months. It was my choice to either divorce or stick it out for a little while. I either had to accept it or let her go. When Kelly was then interviewed, she was not emotional like her husband. And Kath, I watched a video of this and I couldn't see the interviewer, but it sounded to me like it was Chief Frizzo. Hottie McFrizzo. Exactly. Hottie McFrizzo. (laughs) Everybody's favorite chief. (laughs) So Kelly told Chief Frizzo that she loved Chris. She said that she and Chris met at work and went on a couple hikes together. And within a couple weeks, the two of them were having sex four to five times a week. Kelly said they would typically meet after work and they would mostly go to Chris's house, but they had been to her house on a few occasions. She said the last time Chris was in her home was two to three weeks before he was last seen. Kath, of course, this is a weird situation. So at some point, Kelly was asked, did this bother your husband? And this is a direct quote. She says, I was open with him. Chris wasn't the only one I was seeing. My husband suffered with depression for a long time. He had cancer for a while. He can't do anything physical without a lot of pain. So it's kind of hard. (laughs) And when I read that, I was like, oh, gee, your husband had cancer and you're the one complaining about how hard it is. Life's hard when your spouse is sick. Seriously, maybe their marital vows were like, and in health and only and in health. (laughs) Maybe she was another one who crossed her fingers behind her back. Exactly. That happens a lot. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
So Kelly told Chief Frizzo that she brought Chris a lasagna the last time she saw him, which she believed was October 13th or 14th at about 4.30 p.m. She specifically said he did not come to her house, but rather she went to his. Then Kelly was asked if Jason, her husband, would ever hurt her boyfriend Chris. And Kelly said, no, Jason wouldn't want to hurt me, so he would not hurt Chris. She said Jason was not abusive and never hurt her. She did not fear him in any way. Kelly said Jason was simply depressed and had possibly been suicidal. Police then asked if they could search Kelly's phone and she consented and handed it right over. Now, Kath, I know that they could dump the phone and have her wait. You basically hook it up to like, I'm sure there's different companies, but Cellbrite is one of them where you can empty out the contents of the phone. I don't know if they did that and handed it back to her or she left the police department without a phone, but she did point out to the chief that she shared a phone with her husband because a couple of weeks prior, she gave up her phone because they didn't want the expense of having two phones. Investigators looked for evidence of Chris Regan being suicidal or wanting to disappear. But everyone who knew him said he was excited to have a new job and was looking forward to spending time with his son. Iron River Police asked Kelly and Jason to come in for a second interview a few days later on Halloween. Were were they? (laughs) Yes. Were they they were required required to wear wear costumes? (laughs) Who was the hobo and who was the gypsy? (laughs) Who was the lady and who was the tramp? (laughs) Oh, Oh wait, she was both. No, he would have been the lady because he had no balls. Uh, That's a good point. (laughs) Anyway, police now knew that text messages showed that Kelly and Chris set up a date for October 14th, the last day he was seen. This interview with police was much more gloves off than their first interview. They confronted Kelly and Jason with inconsistencies from her last statement in an effort to further pin down a timeline of when Kelly last saw Chris. By this time, investigators knew that Kelly's phone data showed that Kelly's phone was not at Chris's house on the night of the 14th, but rather at her own home. The phone was, however, at Chris's apartment two days after he disappeared. Kelly and Jason denied having anything to do with Chris's disappearance or that Chris was at their home that evening of the 14th. Now, Terry O'Donnell, the former girlfriend who reported Chris missing, was also on the radar of police officers. Some investigators believe that all arrows pointed to her. She was the woman for whom Chris moved to Iron County, but he then cheated on her. And then was moving away from her all the way down to North Carolina. Exactly. Creating an incentive for her to resent him. Also, Kath, I read that Terry was interviewed for two hours by police. And apparently during that interview, she got kind of persnickety. Mouthy. Yeah. (laughs) You know how women are. (laughs) Anyway, some of the investigators, Kath, did not think she had the requisite level of true concern. They thought maybe she was faking it and going through the motions. And another point the investigators brought up was the fact that Chris was actually renting an apartment from Terry's parents. And so they thought that was particularly like pouring salt in the wound. It was a betrayal of sorts. Exactly. And so the idea that somebody from his work was enjoying the apartment other than herself, they thought built resentment. 
Investigators searched the Cochran residence, and the search of the residence focused on the front entryway. I believe this was because crime scene technicians come into the house and they look at the ceiling and it looks to them like there might be blood spatter that has been painted over. So you see this body cam and they're all looking at the ceiling. And then this one guy says, look at this house. You got a 22 handgun over here. You got a baseball bat right there. You got another gun right there. And then he says, you have a hammer over here. What the hell's going on? But what was funny, because, I mean, I can't do a Michigan accent, but it was uh, like... That would be an Upper Peninsula accent. Oh, really? Yes. Very distinct. They're Youpers. Oh, interesting. Yes. I didn't know that. I wonder if the Youpers Uber. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like his accent was like... So, first of all, we're going to apologize in advance to anybody who's offended, but please don't be offended because we're just funny. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's done sincerely. <laughs> The mocking is done sincerely. But the guy was like, look at this house. You got a 22 handgun right here. You got a baseball bat right here. You got another gun right here. It sounds like they don't like to pronounce the letter T. That's how it sounded you to me. You got a bat. Exactly. And he's, look right here. You got a hammer right here. What the hell? It sounds almost like a combination of Chicago and New York. See, Boston. Honestly, I, I was like, thrown in. I was zenning into my mother when I was doing that bad accent. Oh, there we go. Yeah. And as a side note, Ooh. I actually have an affinity for Michigan because it was the very first state in which I drank legally. I was 18 years old and I was visiting my cousins in Chicago. I was a freshman in college and my cousin, because everyone has a crazy cousin, my cousin took me across the border and we went to a bar. And in it was, Canada? No, across the border in Michigan. Oh, to Michigan. Yes, exactly. Oh, we went it. from Illinois to Michigan. <laughs> Canada. <laughs> you could have gone to Canada. Uh, yeah. But here's the funny thing. So my mom was not visiting with us at the time. And so I was like, oh, you know, cousin so-and-so brought me to a bar in Michigan. And she's like, oh, when I was young, women could drink at 18, but boys had to wait till 21. So in my head, I'm thinking like, oh, the legislators just assume that women were more responsible. But then I was like, wait a second. Do we really want a bunch of drunk 18-year-old women hanging out with a bunch of sober older men? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> older men at 21. I exactly. love that. It's so true. Anyway, so these very humorous evidence texts collect from the home the 22 revolver, the baseball bat, the computer, the phone, the keys, and part of a wall leading to the basement. Kathy also found a rough draft of a manuscript, which was handwritten by Jason, and it was called Where Monsters Hide. And it was supposedly a book. But frankly, to me, what I saw, it looked more like an outline. The main character described himself as a hunter. And I only saw snippets. I could only find snippets. But it looks like he talked about killing sprees and the tingle predators get while seeking revenge. And he talks about the hunted knowing the smell of the hunters. They took this notebook as well, and along with other tools, booked everything into evidence. So after the well-spoken forensic text spent all that time in there, nothing specifically connected to Chris was found at the scene. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. 
What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S. F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shortly after the second police interview with Kelly and Jason on October 31st, they left Michigan and went back to Merrillville, Indiana. This was where they had grown up. They still had their apartment in Iron County, but they had their family pack up much of their clothing and the basics. They believed they were being harassed, and they told their family they were sick of the Michigan police. Even with Jason and Kelly gone, investigators continued pursuing all leads. And Kath, at some point fairly early on, investigators found video of Chris at a gas station. Apparently, they had gone into his bank records and started searching where he was spending money and when, and they were able to get footage from a particular gas station. When they looked at the video, they saw Chris gassing up his car on the way to Kelly's house. This was the last sighting of Chris before he disappeared. And even though Chris being at the gas station was consistent with the timeline Kelly provided when she was interviewed, the video was not conclusive. So the investigation goes on. After Chris's Hyundai Genesis was processed, it was revealed that it returned no substantive evidence or DNA that was particularly helpful. They found hair in the car, but Kath, at this point, I don't know. It wasn't specified if it was dog hair or human hair. 
They also found fibers. And then they actually found leaves in the trunk, which was interesting because there were no trees outside Chris's apartment, but there were a lot of trees at Kelly's home because she lived in a much more rural area. Interestingly, the GPS from Chris's vehicle showed that Chris was at Kelly's house on the day he went missing. After obtaining a search warrant, Chris Regan's laptop and hard drive were examined. It appeared he had been on some dating websites and they were able to recover some basic passwords, but there was nothing that could explain where Chris might be. It was clear he was making plans to go to Asheville, North Carolina, but there was nothing on the laptop to suggest anything nefarious. Michael Niger, a retired detective, volunteered to help Chief Frizzo. He examined Kelly's Google search history and discovered that she had looked at satellite imagery of the Caspian Pit. This is a popular fishing spot. Divers were sent there to look for a body. They did not find Chris, but they did find a burn barrel just offshore. It was tied with a clothesline and a cement block was attached to it to weigh it down. From interviews with neighbors, investigators knew that the Cochrans had a burn barrel, but it was no longer at their home. Unfortunately, no DNA was recovered and it could not be linked to the Cochrans. And Kath, detectives interviewed neighbors. One neighbor said she heard a gunshot that night didn't call it in, and said she saw two cars drive away from the Cochran home. Another neighbor heard power tools going into the wee hours of the night, but again didn't call it in. And all of these things took place on October 14th, which was the day Chris Regan disappeared. Despite the best efforts of investigators, the leads went nowhere and the case went cold. Kath, I read somewhere that Chief Frizzo even hired a psychic. The psychic was brought into the Cochrane house and she basically walks into the house through the back door. She takes three steps and she stops and she goes, it happened here. That's I know. creepy. Like even just to be there and hear that. And so she was being interviewed by, I can't even remember who. And the interviewer was like, well, how do you know? And she goes, I have a knowing and I get visions. And I was oh, like, okay, oh, thanks okay, for explaining thanks. it. That tells me everything I need to know. Appreciate it. Five months after the Cochrane's Halloween interview. In March of 2015, another search warrant was executed at their home. Although items were confiscated, there was nothing in the public record which shows the confiscated items were directly connected to Chris Regan's disappearance. Then in August of 2015, the FBI got involved. Kath, I read that they also executed a search warrant for the house and that they went to Indiana to search the Cochran's truck obtain hairs from their dog and get their fingerprints. And I read somewhere that when the FBI was collecting all these things, that one of the investigators called Kelly and said, the FBI are investigating you. Something like we're coming and arrest is close. Once again, law enforcement appeared to be closing in, but nothing happened. Then on February 20th, 2016, Something happened that breathed life into the case. Jason Cochran died. Kelly called 911 from their Merrillville home and told the operator multiple times to send an ambulance. She said that her husband Jason was barely breathing. When EMTs arrived, Jason was still warm but deceased. According to his obituary, Jason was 37 years old and a graduate of Maryville High School. 
The obituary said he was a student at Purdue University Calumet studying business management and that he was an avid fisherman and loved the outdoors. The obituary said he was survived by his loving wife of 13 years, Kelly Marie Cochran, as well as his parents and extended relatives. The preliminary death investigation suggested a heroin overdose, and Kelly admitted to using heroin with Jason. She said she told EMTs that she passed out, and when she came to, her husband was barely breathing. Now, although Jason had three times the lethal dose of heroin in his system, the medical examiner attributed his death to strangulation. Excuse me? Yeah, exactly. So Detective Jeremy Ogden from the Hobart Police Department was now assigned to the case and began interviewing Jason's family and friends. Chief Frizzo gets wind of the fact that Jason is now dead. And so she calls Detective Ogden and she's like, hey, this is what's happened over in Michigan and I want to keep you apprised of it. Chief Frizzo sent Detective Ogden her case file and discussed with him her suspicions that Kelly and Jason had murdered Chris Regan one and a half years prior in Iron County, Michigan. So she sends him her file. He reads it over the course of, I don't know, four or five hours and concludes that Chief Frizzo had reasonable suspicions that Kelly and Jason Cochran had something to do with Chris Regan's disappearance. Shortly after her husband's death, in March 2016, Kelly received a phone call. It was from a friend of Jason's. This friend informed Kelly that he had recently received a letter in the mail from Jason. Inside the letter was another letter addressed to the Iron River Police Department. This friend told Kelly that Jason's letter said that if anything happened to him, he should mail the letter. She basically begged this guy not to mail the letter. However, the phone call was a ruse, and Detective Ogden was listening to this conversation. Based on Kelly's reaction, Detective Ogden believed that Chief Frizzo's suspicions were correct and asked Kelly to come in for an interview. So this began a very weird relationship, Kath, between the detective and the suspect. Detective Ogden established a rapport with Kelly over time. For whatever reason, she was willing to talk to him. He interviewed her about Chris Regan's disappearance and her husband Jason's death, which of course the coroner had ruled a strangulation. It was interesting because in watching these videos, Kelly was almost trying to toy with Detective Ogden. Like she thought she was totally in control. She had this permanent smirk on her face that you just wanted to slap off. Totally. And in fact, one of her mugshots, I think it was the second one, she has this unbelievable smirk on her face. Yeah. It's crazy. She was trying to be kind of coquettish and flirty. I know. Honestly, it was hard watching because... It was creepy. Creepy is the freaking perfect word. Yeah. But it was like she knew she was in control. She knew he wanted information from her. And she was smug because she had this information. And what tripped me out was her eye contact. Did you notice that? It never wavered. Never. Like the confidence was ridiculous. I read somewhere that Detective Ogden said that she was the most difficult person he'd ever had to interview. I'm sure like trying to get information from a sociopath is hard. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you're right, though. Actually, I mean, we were joking about it, but it is hard because nothing throws them. No. Right. They're not bothered by anything. 
Detective Ogden told Kelly in one interview, you can either be a witness or a suspect. And that is when she changed from saying that she was never afraid of her husband to now saying that she was a victim of his violent temper. On March 29, 2016, this is one and a half years after Chris Regan went missing, Kelly was interviewed again and finally revealed information. Now, I didn't see this interview, Kathy, but I think you did. Yes, exactly. You had said that the body language was different. Again, in every interview I saw of Kelly, she was like toying with this detective. And in this interview, she wasn't. I'm sure probably for the first part she was. But imagine being the person being interviewed and your chair is literally up against a wall. And then there's this small table in front of you. So she was very crowded in. Kind of like our setup in here. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Trust me when I tell you we could get confessions. (laughs) So anyway, so she's in this chair. She's up against the wall. The table is rather small. And this detective, he's a big detective. And he's hunching over the table, leaning forward. She has her eyes cast down for the first time I've ever seen. And he's holding her wrists. Imagine like, so she kind of has her hands up on the table and he's holding her hands, holding her wrists, and he's imploring her to give information. Honestly, it was the craziest thing because it was the first time that it appeared that she was weak. And he was so in her space, just like the energy of even watching the interview is very, very interesting. As he's holding her wrist and leaning forward and burrowing into her with his body language, she quietly tells him that Chris died quickly. She said that Jason, her husband, said, what are you going to do to make up for the cheating, meaning her relationship with Chris? She said that Jason made her bring Chris to their house, but Jason was supposed to be gone. Now she's telling this to Detective Ogden through a series of kind of quiet questions. And she said that unbeknownst to her, Jason was in the basement. So while Kelly and Chris were having sex upstairs, Jason came in and shot Chris in the head. And then she said Jason cut Chris up. Detective Ogden then told Kelly that they were going to Michigan to look for Chris's remains. She agreed to go. But when they were there, they found nothing. Then they went to Kelly and Jason's Iron County home to reenact the murder. What was interesting here, Kathy, is that the whole thing was being videotaped and Detective Ogden was being very bossy, very dominant. And Kelly seemed to respond to that because she began acting as the submissive. Totally. What he was doing, Kathy, is they were there to reenact this murder. And so Kelly would say something like, this is where the murder happened. Remember, she's being submissive. And he would start snapping his fingers and say, get up reenact it. Where exactly was the body? Where were you standing? What happened here? Come on, get up, get a move on, get a move on. And she responded immediately every time and did everything she was told. At the home, Kelly's story changed. Now she said that Jason was hiding in the basement, unbeknownst to her, and that when Chris entered the home through the back door, Jason shot Chris as he and Kelly were in a romantic embrace. Both Kelly and Chris then fell down the basement stairs. So, Kath, what this looks like is imagine you're going in the back door. You're on a very small landing, probably like four feet by four feet. In front of you is a wall. To the left of you is a flight of stairs down to the basement. To the right of you are like three or four steps up to the next level, like the kitchen level. 
And so her version this time is that they were doing some hanky-panky on this little landing. Chris gets shot in the head and they both tumble down the stairs to the basement. And once they got there, Jason had a tarp all ready to cut Chris up. Kelly told Detective Ogden that Jason made her dig the bullet out of Chris's head with forceps. She also said Jason threatened her with his gun and she was afraid for her life, especially because, Kath, he shot twice into the basement ground just to show her he was serious. Jason cut up Chris with a sawzall and they put him in a bag and dumped his pieces in a field with a lot of trees. This was kind of a field that was just off like a two lane highway kind of thing. Afterward, Jason made her cook him dinner and clean up the blood. Over time, Detective Ogden obtained over 100 hours of interviews, all without Kelly having a lawyer. Many are on YouTube. We've described some of them to you. But if you're interested and want to see something that's creepy, obsessed, sexual, smirky, controlly, go to YouTube and you can watch them. (laughs) Exactly. At this point, Kelly is still holding herself as a victim and she has not been arrested. Then a month later, on Chris's birthday, so this was April 26 of 2015, for no explicable reason, Kelly called Chief Frizzo and told her that Jason had killed other people. She said that Jason had two bags of trophies and she found them and buried them before they dumped Chris's body. She kind of gave a vague description of where these were located, but neither of these bags were ever found. The next day, an arrest warrant was issued. Detective Ogden pinged Kelly's phone and had the U.S. Marshals arrest her at her sister's home in Kentucky. Based upon her confessions, Kelly was eventually charged with aiding and abetting the murder of Chris Regan in Michigan. She was also charged for Jason's strangulation death in Indiana. Now, Kath, this booking photo was so horrific of Kelly. It's like, do you remember those ad campaigns like 10 years ago? It was called something like the Faces of Meth or something. Oh, yeah. Where they had before and afters. Oh, my gosh. Honestly, her photo looks so bad. She had like scabs all over her face. She just looks super methy. Anyway, while in a Kentucky jail awaiting extradition, Kelly said she wanted to talk. Detectives from Hobart and Iron River went to the jail to interview her. Like other times, she had been given the Miranda warning and did not invoke her Fifth Amendment rights. She kept waving it because, you know, she was so smart. Detective Ogden was there and she starts toying with him again. This very smug body language, the smirks and all this kind of crap, even though she's sitting there in handcuffs. She wouldn't answer his questions and he's starting to get frustrated or at least feigning frustration. And he said, I just drove six hours to interview you. And she goes, I gave you Chris, meaning she admitted to what happened. And so Detective Ogden says, why did you give me Chris? And she goes, because you asked me to, because you saw more in me. It was this very strange dynamic. Yes, that she was reading in way more. And all Detective Ogden wanted was confessions. Over time, the detective was able to kind of turn the conversation around and manipulate Kelly into making admissions about killing her husband. So she eventually says, in relation to her husband's death, I just figured it was a life for a life. I didn't force him to sniff anything, referring to the heroin. I shot mine. I sniffed a line too, I think. We were both pretty effed up. He was having trouble breathing. That heroin was so raw. He started getting sick. I held his nose. I held his mouth. The look on his face. 
there's confusion, there's fear. He didn't move much. He choked. He'd been vomiting at that point. Then she looks at the detective and she goes, can you imagine how it is to drown in your own fluids? Probably pretty painful. It didn't take long, maybe a minute sitting on him. She was freaking sitting on him as he was vomiting and stoned from heroin and suffocating him. And the detective basically goes, why did you use heroin? And she goes, because he said he wanted to have a good time. Oh, (laughs) I think their definitions are a little different. Now, Kath, in that same interview from the Kentucky jail, Kelly tells Detective Ogden that Jason has killed 11 people and that her body count was 21, not including Chris. Do you think she was telling the truth? Did he think she was telling the truth? I don't know, but he did his level best to find any information that could lead to other bodies. And actually, she sent him on a couple of wild goose chases, but nothing she said ever revealed usable information on finding anyone else. And in this interview, Kelly also revealed a really bizarre oath that she said Jason invoked, which caused her to participate in Chris's death. She said on the night of their wedding, Jason made her swear that if either one of them ever cheated, the cheating spouse would kill their romantic partner. And if they didn't do it, the other spouse would do it. And Kath, there's a lot of information out there on the web about this case. And many of them say, oh, they took a blood oath. No, they didn't. There was nothing related to blood or anything. But Kelly ultimately said she didn't take the oath seriously, but she said she helped Jason plan Chris's murder so that Jason wouldn't get caught. She didn't want to lose Chris and her husband. Once back in Michigan after her arraignment, the Daily News of Iron Mountain reported that the prosecutors requested a competency hearing because Kelly told the judge she wanted to represent herself. After the arraignment, Kelly told Chief Frizzo she wanted to take the police to Chris's remains. The next day, which was May 17th of 2016, Kelly took law enforcement officers on a ride. She eventually told them to pull over because they were at the spot where she dumped Chris's body. However, neither investigators nor a cadaver dog were able to locate the remains. While searching for Chris's remains, Kelly told the detectives that she'd like a smoke which she did multiple times. She also asked for a cheese pizza and a soda. After searching through the field and not finding any remains, investigators now want to take Kelly back to the house where Chris was murdered to once again look for evidence and reenact the murders. Once they got their calf, she just stood around eating pizza while discussing the murders inside the house. After Kelly was taken back to jail, Chief Frizzo went back out to the field with officers to do one more search with a cadaver dog. What Chief Frizzo said was she's looking around and she was near the area where Kelly had brought them, but she wasn't exactly on the spot. And she's just kind of letting the dog go. And then she sees what looks like a coconut to her. And she goes over to it and realizes it is Chris's skull. They also found Chris's glasses as well. The teeth were positively identified by a dentist as Chris's, and the medical examiner confirmed the death was a homicide by gunshot wound. Eventually, the judge assigned Kelly an attorney, but by then, she had sealed her fate. At trial, the jury heard everything, including the admissions she made about murdering other people. 
She took the stand and walked back on a number of her statements as she had before, but it was too late. She claimed to be the victim of domestic violence, but nobody believed her. It was clear she was the dominant person in her marriage. In 2017, a jury found Kelly Cochran guilty of first-degree murder, larceny, conspiracy to mutilate a dead body, concealing the death of a person, and lying to a peace officer. Kath, I believe the larceny was because when she went to Chris's apartment two days after he disappeared, she stole his camera. Kelly was sentenced to life without parole for first-degree murder and an additional 11 to 18 years for the other felonies. She wound up pleading guilty to her husband Jason Cochran's murder in 2018 and was sentenced to 65 years to be served consecutively. Regarding the 21 people that Kelly Cochran once said that she had killed, she never gave any information that led to the cache of murder souvenirs or other victims. Some think she was a complete and total liar, and others believe she is a serial killer. She is currently serving her sentence in Michigan at the Huron Valley Women's Prison Complex. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the story as much as we enjoyed telling it. (laughs) Rate us, review us, Mm -hmm. and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Only five stars are allowed. Remember that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.